0: Welcome to Improbable Walks, the podcast that brings you to the streets of Paris wherever you are. My name is Lisa Passold and I'm a writer and traveler who loves to walk in the City of Light. Every episode, we step into history by strolling down a different block of the city, exploring buildings and people of the past and of the present. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your time and ears. If you're just discovering the podcast, please check out my website, lisapassel.com, for photos, previous streets, and more information. You can also support this free podcast by visiting my Patreon page, patreon.com slash lisapassold, where you can sign up for postcards and other insider details. You can also subscribe to the podcast, which lets you know when our new monthly episode is posted and helps Improbable Walks to find new listeners. Today, we're going to focus on the fiction writer and journalist, Émile Zola. We're starting in Place de Clichy, on the edge of the 18th and 17th arrondissement. We visited this area for the Batignol talk back in May 2022, with the episode called Impressionists in Clichy. To talk about the Impressionist painters, we headed up the street from Place de Clichy, and today we're walking down from the Place, along Rue de Clichy, downhill into the city. I like starting in Place de Clichy because I can pause in one of my favorite old-school cafés, the Wepler. This Belle Époque café makes me think of the atmosphere in this neighborhood back when Émile Zola lived here in the late 19th century. These lines are from early 20th century American writer Alvin Sanborn, who gives you an idea of what the atmosphere was like. Sanborn writes, Here are bloused and frocked Laborers with their white-capped wives and their black-aproned children, petty tradesmen and tradeswomen, and one or two uniformed soldiers. On the table are glasses of dark brown coffee, light brown beer, red wine, and pearly absinthe. Beside cards, dice, dominoes, check checkers, and backgammon boards, tally slates, and newspapers. Here are also tobacco smoke and good humor. So I'll just finish up my noisette, my favorite, which is a small espresso with milk, and then we'll head down to number 8486, Rue de Clichy. Now, 84 Rue de Clichy is now the gambling club Montmartre, a high-stakes poker club which is run by a woman, a rarity in the business, Madame Frédérique Ruggieri. And it's worth admiring the building. This building at 84 Rue de Clichy was originally an old bouillon, or working-class cafeteria-style restaurant. This was a typical bouillon, a large, bustling place to eat with a glass skylight that let in the light. Waiters in traditional black waistcoats used to serve meat and potatoes type of meals with traditional desserts. In 1947, however, this particular clichy bouillon here on Rue de Clichy became a pool hall. From 1947 to 2018, the building was a really fantastic place to play billiards and it had gambling in the dark back room. Now, back in the 90s, I played billiards here really badly, but I had a lot of fun. Now, today, the billiards tables have been removed and the club is just a serious poker club. So if you're a poker player, you might want to check it out. And then you can look at the beautifully restored, elegant interior and the stained glass ceiling that dates from the turn of the century. But our main goal today is just around the corner at Rue de Bruxelles. We're here to admire the apartment of novelist and journalist Émile Zola. So let's go over to number 21 bis, Rue de Bruxelles, which was Zola's apartment as an adult. Now, Émile Zola was born in Paris in 1840. He was raised in the south, in Aix-en-Provence, and while he grew up there in the south, he got to know a boy his age, named Paul Cézanne, who grew up to be a painter. Zola returned to Paris at age 18. He was penniless. He lived on the left bank and claimed to have eaten sparrows he caught on the roof. Fortunately, his friend Paul Cézanne also came to Paris and let Zola move in with him. And another friend's father recommended Zola to work at the Hachette publishing company. Zola was thrilled. In his journal, he wrote, Saved from Bohemia. Zola learned to write successful short stories, journalism, and criticism. He wanted to portray the world in all its grim glory. He was never a socialist. One critic says he was more of an anarchist, and he spent a lot of time in cafes discussing education and the working class. Zola wrote, Educate the worker. Take him out of the misery in which he lives. Combat the crowding and the promiscuity of the workers' quarters, where the air thickens and stinks. And above all, prevent drunkenness, which decimates the people and kills mind and body. Zola wrote from experience. He'd been so poor that he once pawned all his clothes apart from a single bedsheet to sleep in. But by the time he moved into this quiet street apartment in a lovely new houseman building, Zola was a respected member of the middle class, a well-known journalist, a prolific novelist. His books sold like hotcakes. Zola got rich, he got fat, And he was an easily recognized character in the neighborhood. He was also a frequent and opinionated member of the Impressionist circle up at the Café Gerbois. Now, this was the café patronized by many of the painters who lived in the neighborhood, many of them Impressionists. As I mentioned, Zola had first met Paul Cézanne when he was a kid in the South. Zola got along well with painters. He first became friends with painter Edouard Manet in 1866. Now we know the exact year that Manet and Zola met, because that's the date that Zola wrote a fabulously positive critical review of Manet's work. And Manet was so thrilled, he invited the writer to meet up for a drink at his local café, the Café Guerbois. By the late 1860s, this café was the place to talk about art with the most interesting creative types in the city. Now, Édouard Manet is remembered for his elegant, scandalous paintings. He was also known as a charming, witty friend, the sort of person you absolutely wanted to meet in a café, because he was smart and fun and always up for a challenge. But despite his lifelong position as an artistic rebel, Manet longed to have his work included in the annual official art show in Paris. But he was rejected repeatedly. Critics called Manet's work vulgar and unartistic. This was especially difficult for Manet because his friends kept getting accepted. One of his good friends was Victorine Meurent. Who we remember as a model. She's the remarkable redhead in Manet's famous nude painting, Olympia. However, at their, in their era, Victorine Marant was actually much more successful than Manet as a painter. Works by Victorine Marant appeared in the salons and were well received. In 1876, when Manet was rejected yet again by the official salon, the officials did accept Victorine Marin's self-portrait. And no matter how happy he was for his friend's success, Manet grew depressed about his own failures. He wrote to his friend, the poet Charles Baudelaire, saying, they are raining insults upon me. So it's no wonder that when he received an excellent review from up-and-coming writer Émile Zola, Manet reached out. Fellow painters, photographers and critics dropped by to grab a drink and gossip about the events of the week. Artists were shoulder to shoulder with the factory workers, the artisans and the shopkeepers of this Place de Clichy area. And Zola, too, was thrilled to be invited to join this charmed circle that included Nadar, the famous photographer, and many other painters, including Claude Monet. As a writer, Émile Zola had a real impact on these meetings because he brought his politics to the table. He encouraged the artists to paint real modern life. Zola became a crucial anchor for the group. Unfortunately, this popularity didn't last. By 1886, Zola had managed to offend most of his painter friends. This is because of what he'd written. He published, "...no painter working in the modern movement has achieved a result equivalent to that which had been achieved by at least three or four writers working in the same movement inspired by the same ideas." He published a hurtful novel called L'œuvre, in which he described his friends like Cézanne as artists who couldn't attain the level of work they desired. Now, this was especially cruel to write about Cézanne, a friend who'd stood by him through Zola's poorest, most desperate years. Zola, perhaps completely callous or just unaware that the painters might be upset, Zola actually mailed copies of this book to all his painter friends. Now, the apartment on Rue de Bruxelles was Zola's home base from 1889, so shortly after he fell out with most of the painters, until Zola's death in 1902. But in this neighborhood, he also kept a second apartment. Because Zola wasn't only a critical friend, he was a somewhat bizarre husband. For the first half of his married life, he was extremely faithful to his wife, though he was saddened by their lack of children. And then suddenly, at the age of 50, in 1888, he began an affair with his wife's chambermaid, Jeanne Rosereau. So he didn't leave his wife, but they moved into this apartment And Zola set Jeanne up in a nearby, separate apartment, over on Rue du Havre. There's about a 10-minute walk between the two apartments. Zola had two children with Jeanne and divided his life between the two households. He called both women his wives. He would appear at Paris literary events, sometimes with one and sometimes with the other woman, depending on his mood. Bizarre though he was as a husband and as a friend, Zola was a great fighter for social justice. His novels pushed for social change, and he actually risked his life to defend Captain Dreyfus. In 1894, the extremely long and troubling Dreyfus affair began in Paris. This was the appalling, unfair, and false conviction of the French officer Alfred Dreyfus, who was a Jewish artillery captain in the French army. Captain Dreyfus was falsely accused and convicted of passing military secrets to the Germans. He was court-martialed for treason, which meant that while the crowd shouted anti-Semitic epithets, Republican guards at the École Militaire tore off Dreyfus' badges, his military rank, and even the stripes on his trousers. Then they ceremoniously broke his sword and sent him to prison on Devil's Island off French Guiana. Dreyfus survived this horrific treatment, but he was not released even when the true spy was discovered. What finally saved his life was an article written by Émile Zola. On January 13, 1898, Zola protested that the unfair conviction of Dreyfus was the responsibility of the French military. Zola published an open letter in L'Aurore, a popular newspaper. The letter was addressed to the president of the French Republic and accused the army of covering up its mistakes. Zola took a very public stand in defense of Captain Dreyfus, even though the general public was willing to assume his guilt. The long open letter rightfully accused the French government and the highest command of the army of obstruction of justice and anti-Semitism. In the letter, Zola named several generals, specifically accusing them correctly of criminal behavior to frame Dreyfus. Naming the generals left Zola opened the charge of libel, even though he was writing the truth. Papers had already spent a lot of energy attacking Captain Dreyfus and the scandal of war secrets being betrayed. Now the writers turned their vociferous attention to Emile Zola, And journalists in all kinds of newspapers called him a fool, a peacock, a vice-monger, a smut fancier. Nationalists and Catholics hated Zola and took an anti-Dreyfus position against the socialists, liberals and Republicans who supported Zola and Dreyfus. Now, Zola's letter essentially launched the rehabilitation of an innocent man, but Zola was charged with libel and brought to trial. He was sentenced to one-year imprisonment and a fine of 3,000 francs. So Zola fled to London, literally in the clothes he was wearing, with no luggage. He arrived in the rainy capital of England in 1898 and spent almost a year there. He was miserable, not least because juggling his two households was very difficult from exile. He missed his children, he missed both his wives, and he had trouble writing. Meanwhile, Dreyfus was still in prison in Guiana. But slowly, the publication of J'accuse had an impact. As a result of the new attention focused on the affair, Dreyfus underwent a new court-martial. The dishonest trial found Dreyfus guilty yet again, even though the actual culprit, a Catholic named Esterhazy, had confessed to the crime. But because of public uproar directly the result of Zola's letter, the president of France pardoned Dreyfus days after the case. The formal final legal clearing of Dreyfus's name was finished only in 1906. And amazingly, Captain Dreyfus went on to serve in the French army during World War I. But let's go back to late summer, 1899, when Zola was finally able to come back home, here to the apartment near Place de Clichy. He arrived back in Paris at the nearby Saint-Lazare train station, beautifully painted by his friend Claude Monet. I imagine him coming home, exhausted, happy to finally be back on rue de Bruxelles with his wife. He might have admired his paintings because the apartment here had rooms on the ground floor and the next floor up, the first floor, and it was beautifully decorated with paintings by Manet and Cezanne and other of his painter friends. This is the apartment where he wrote *Shakus*. This is the apartment where he came home after his exile. And this is also where Zola died in September 1902. Now, strangely, Jacques might have been responsible for his death. Long after the Dreyfus affair and his return to Paris, Zola continued to receive death threats. And suddenly, in 1902, he died, asphyxiated by carbon monoxide poisoning caused by a blocked flue in his bedroom in this apartment. Nothing was ever proven, but 20 years later, a rabid nationalist and anti dreyfusard claimed to have been responsible for the murder of Émile Zola by blocking that chimney. We'll never know the truth. I can tell you, though, that in 1908, Zola was exhumed from the Montmartre Cemetery, where he'd wanted to be buried, and his body was taken to the Pantheon to be laid in state next to writer Victor Hugo. During the procession, angry anti-drefusards tried to stop the hearse. Both of Zola's wives attended the ceremony. That must have been awkward. And Captain Dreyfus was an invited guest in front of the Pantheon. In a final violent attack, a rabid nationalist terrorist shot Dreyfus in the arm at the ceremony. Fortunately, Dreyfus suffered only a small wound and the shooter was arrested. For a calmer end to today's improbable walk, if the weather's nice, you might want to wander past Zola's apartment to the end of the street, where the Rue de Bruxelles leads into a pretty little square named for the composer Hector Berlioz. In the 1850s, a nude statue of Napoleon was installed here, posed as a Greek conqueror. This statue so upset the neighbors that they dressed the statue in clothes to make it more decent. They put a French uniform on naked Napoleon, naturally. Naturally. The nude statue has long since been replaced, and now it's a much more sedate portrait of the composer Berlioz. If you enjoyed this improbable walk, please do subscribe to the podcast. For photos and details about the walk, please visit my website, lisapassel.com. If you're looking for further links and information, you can also support the free podcast by visiting my Patreon page. Many thanks, as always, to my tiny podcast team, Bremner Fletcher for tech help, and David Simmons for the atmospheric accordion theme music. Until the next time, we go walking into Paris history together.